Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag. With me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Shalom, everybody. How, how's it going? The Hoff. The Hoff. The Hoff is well. Baruch Hashem. We got a... Uh, now, okay. For those who haven't figured this out yet, when we don't know what we're going to do for a topic, when we have no clue, and it comes to the deadline, and we have nothing, <laughs> we just bring in the big guns. That's <laughs> why my father has been on this show the past, uh, I don't know, he's, he's been on a lot recently. It's because with the festivals going on and everything, we just don't have a whole lot of time and we don't have a whole lot of uh, prep, you know, prep that's going on. So, uh, what up and shalom, welcome dad, how's it going? Hey, it's nice to be here again. And I don't think I've been here that much, uh, which is just fine with me, but I'm glad <laughs> to be on, uh, on this week, that's great. Yeah, so it's the middle of Sukkot, for those who might not know. And uh, so we're having a good Sukkot. It's been extremely hectic for me. What about you? Well, Rob just uh, f- what d- flew down to Oregon, is that right? And drove his parents' rig back? Yeah, yeah, I did. That's a that's another reason why my we... Folks uh, were on vacation and yeah, they had, uh, my dad had some health difficulties and his meds wouldn't prevent him or prevented him from being able to drive, so... Had a, had a wonderful day with them yesterday, driving them home. Well, we're glad that you're back. But uh, Rob didn't know that my dad was coming on the show until about two minutes ago. And <laughs> uh, he has no clue of what we're going to talk about today because since he was gone yesterday and since Monday was a Shabbat, we have literally not talked at all about this show. <laughs> uh, so, But that's okay because sometimes uh, when, we, when we fly by the seat of our pants... It turns out that we have, people are always like, oh man, that was like the best show that you guys have ever had. So before we get started, let's uh, let's get the formalities out of the way. Uh, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource and find all kinds of free articles. You can find video lectures, you can find books to buy, you can buy, find courses, Torah Resource Institute is the school, the online school. You can sign up for classes right now for fall classes, for our fall, fall quarter. And uh, both my father, Tim Hegg, and Rob Van Hoff are teaching courses this year, of course, as they always do. So come learn with us. And also a big happy birthday to our radio programmer, Gary Springer. He is programming the show for us today. And it is his birthday. I don't know which birthday it is, but it is his birthday today. Shall we sing? No, we should not sing. That that is a bad idea. <laughs> um, and before the last thing I have before we get started, I I have a general call uh, call to action for everyone out there. Now, what was it last week? Last week we did a show. We talked a little bit about Monty Judah and how he's a false prophet and how he called himself a prophet. <clears throat> Pardon me. And how he said if he his prophecies didn't come true to throw him on the trash heap and never listen to again, him again and persuade people not to listen to him, which we're more than happy to do. 
since his prophecy didn't come true. Uh, he said all that in a February 1996 newsletter of Yavo, which is his publication that he produces. And uh, it has come to my attention that Mr. Judah is now denying that he ever wrote that, even though there are many, many, many witnesses. Anyway, so if any of our listeners have a hard copy, I know people who used to have hard copies, but for one reason or another, they threw them away. If anyone has a hard copy of the 1996 February February Yova newsletter, would you please email me and let me know? We would love to uh, love to see that and maybe get a copy of it. Okay. So, uh, yesterday, with no subject on the horizon, I put out a call for people on our Facebook page to send in show topics. Now, we have a couple of questions here that came in, which we will address, and then we will get on to our main topic. And, uh, yeah. Okay, so, should we open up the mailbag? Let's open up the mailbag. Mail All right. So Zach says, uh, saw this late, so this question problem. Okay, blah, blah, blah. On your show about conversion, you guys kept on stating, and my father was on that show as well, you guys kept on stating something to effect that the Bible has nowhere in it that Gentiles become became Jews. However, in the book of Esther, it states that the Persians literally became Jews. Now, I do realize some may argue that it was false conversion, etc., but regardless, uh, regardless, this, I believe, is an instance that shows that some primitive practice was in place. I will concede that it was probably nothing like what was going on during the Maccabees, first century, and even today. But regardless, that's what came to mind during the show. Responses, either of you? Yeah, well, I think he's, I think he's talking about, is it chapter 8, 13, or something like that? It's got the Hebrew word... Mit Yahadim, right. Mit Yahadim, and so it's from the root Yud He Dalit in Hitpael Binyan Hitpael, which is a, often a reflexive or passive. Um, the the difficulty here is that this is a hapax. This is it only occurs here in all the Bible. It's, uh, so we we don't really know, and it, we know that whatever it was, it was because of fear. Um, I read it as they pretended, they pretended uh, to be Jews to avoid prosecution, and it was a temporarily, I think it was a temporary thing. Is, um, is that's that's my. Yeah. Is it also possible, um, Rob, that the uh, meet Yahadim, the hit by a participle, um, is it also possible that it simply means they sided with the Jews? Yeah, yeah, something I, I think that... It, because since it's reflexive, or, or oftentimes reflexive, it doesn't have to be... It, I, I recognize the Hitpael Binyarin uh, could uh, could be passive, it is sometimes, but normally it's reflexive. So it's it's they, uh, the way the English translations say uh, uh, that they made themselves Jews, or uh, something to that effect. And uh, right. And if you look at the different uh, uh, different Bible dictionaries, Hebrew Bible dictionaries, you know, for example, the Halot, Hebrew Aramaic lexicon, mm-hmm. has to pose as a Jew. Right. Um, uh, but then apparently they they refer to the theological workbook of, uh, oh, what are they? 
say alternatively to embrace Judaism, but that that would be totally anachronistic, of course. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, it's one of those things we just we have it occurring once. We have to look at the context, and it seems that fear was the motivator. Fear of man was the motivator. Um, mm-hmm. uh, fear of uh, attack, if, right. uh, you know. And so well, the other thing is the other thing is is that if if you're trying if people are trying to uh, refit later rabbinic Judaism back onto Esther, you you don't you can't do it yourself. You know, you, if if the verb is reflected, <laughs> oh yeah, you can't, right. you can't just all of a sudden decide. Okay, I'm a Jew. I mean, that, that's not how the rabbis. No, you had to go according to the much later rabbinic uh, uh, literature. The, the uh, ceremony of conversion involved a number of different things, including being taught certain things. Uh, yeah, uh, but I, I think well, I gotta I gotta jump in here. I think that Zach actually kind of speaks to this because he says I will concede that it was probably nothing like what was okay. going on during the Maccabees or the first century. So where so where do you if you don't take the the second, third, the post-destruction uh, rabbinic Judaism uh, in terms of its description of conversion, then where do you find anything about it? it you know, so in other words, even the idea that you have some ceremony by which a Gentile is given a legal Jewish status that occurred in the first century. Now, you have proselytes, I recognize that. You know, you have prosolutos, but uh, in the Greek, and it's referred to in the Apostolic Scriptures. Okay, I recognize that. But it, we really don't know for certain that the later rabbinic uh, conversion process, as it's laid out, for instance, in the Bavli, in the uh, Babylonian Talmud, you know, uh, I guess what, what I'm saying in short is we wring our hands asking, is there real historicity in the rabbinic literature or not? When we would have to say there must be some, but how do we, how do we find what's history and what's not? Let's not forget that one of the primary uh, theses of of the rabbis is that all of the oral Torah was given to Moses at Sinai. I mean, how more anachronistic can you get? Everyone recognizes that that wasn't the case, and even the rabbis recognized it wasn't the case, but they said it in order to give the oral Torah uh, equal authority. So just because they said that it was given to Moses, they didn't really think it was given to Moses. They're using that phraseology to say it has authority. So you know, separating history from from uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, made up history is is one of the challenges when we read the rabbinic literature. I think you just use the Bible, do whatever the hell you like. Okay, so let's move on. Now we have here, here, uh, one more point. If I could just make about the Esther eight thirteen or seventeen or whatever mm-hmm. it is, is that we're, we're given no the, the context has no no sniff, no whiff of of non Jews worshiping the god of abraham isaac and jacob right um and in in anywhere near like we see let's say in isaiah 56 where it talks about the sons of the foreigners who um attach themselves n- to the n- use use yeah. a different type of thing attach themselves to uh, hashem so uh, anyway good I, i'm glad that verse mentioned it was mentioned because it is one that people often cite but if we look at the hebrew and we realize our english translations aren't are sometimes imposing later developments, uh, sadly, and, and leading the readers astray. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that Zach brought it up. Okay, so this is from Parr, and I probably have his name wrong. I've never actually talked to Parr. 
uh, like face to face or even on Skype or anything. So I'm just going off of his Swedish. He's from Sweden, and I hope to someday travel to Sweden and get to sit down and have a cup of coffee or something with Par because uh, he seems like a, a cool guy. He says, conjectural emendations. Since we, compared to the New Testament, lack the same abundance of textual support for the text of the Tanakh, should we as believers be open to conjectural emendations, alterations to the text which have no manuscript support, to uh, the consent text of the Hebrew Scriptures? Having worked uh, my way lately through Deuteronomy 33, 1-5, it seems to me that we must resort to this practice at times. What are your thoughts on this issue? Well, let me just uh, start it off here. The idea that we don't have a lot of manuscripts, uh, okay, that, that, that in comparison to the apostolic scriptures, that's true. On the other hand, we have very, very early manuscripts. I mean, we have Deuteronomy in the Qumran scrolls. That's far earlier than what we have of any of the apostolic scriptures. Um, we also have the Septuagint, and we have it in various versions, I grant. Uh, but uh, we have the Septuagint, which by all uh, uh, data available, was extant in the first century BCE, at least of the Torah. And uh, we know that because we have some of the Septuagint in, in the Qumran scrolls, even if it seems to have some divergence with the later Septuagint as we find it in, in, the, in the great codexes uh, of uh, Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and so forth, um, Vaticanus. But my point simply is this. If, if we take the Masoretic text uh, that, that was maintained and only written down in the 5th, in the 6th century, but nonetheless uh, seems to have been maintained, We've, we can see quotations from, for instance, Paul sometimes quotes not the Septuagint, but he quotes a Hebrew text. What he quotes seems to be what the Masoretic text has almost entirely, uh, not always, but but uh, close. Um, so if we if we take the Masoretic text, we put it against whatever Qumran uh, evidence we have, we put it against the Septuagint, when we find all three of them matching up, I think that's a pretty good witness to saying, okay, we should take that. Now, if if we find uh, a Septuagint and Qumran agreeing against the Masoretic text, then I think we have good textual grounds to say, let's consider this alternate reading. You know, for instance, as in Isaiah 53.11, where it says, and he will see light and be satisfied. Okay, so uh, Qumran has light, uh, Septuagint has light, and Masoretic text doesn't. I, I take it to be resurrection. Uh, he will see light and, and be satisfied. Okay. So, um, uh, then I would say, I think the, uh, the NIV, for instance, is correct in putting that in their English text and putting a footnote saying that the Masoretic text uh, doesn't have the word light. I'd, I'd like to see more of the English translations take the weight of textual criticism, of the textual criticism, um, and put it in. But in terms of conjectural, like we're going we're gonna to think something's missing here, so we're going to add it, I really think that's... I think we're on soft ground on that. I, I think if I might share, too, a few comments along those same lines. Um, what, one bigger problem that Parr points out here is the, what, what is the place of conjecture in the body of Messiah? Right. I mean, let's not, even, let's not even be specific that we're talking about uh, text. 
just the nature of conjecture itself, we have to be careful. And particularly now that we're on the other side of the tetrad of blood moons, <laughs> the John Hagees, you know, of the world and, the, and all his posse in the big movie that they produced. And then the 923 thing came and went. And we've seen it. How many times have we, we have to be careful when people are speculating and uh, conjecturing and building Basically what it is, it's building on sand. Yeshua said build on rock. And we want to learn to do that. We want to be build on the rock of the word and to not build on sand. And that's kind of our own ongoing trajectory of our education in the, as disciples of Yeshua as we learn more and more where the rock is. We get more and more sure of where the rock is and strengthened in that. And then we... Uh, sometimes by trial and error, sometimes by wisdom that we get from others, we learn, oh, I was on sand there and I didn't realize it, and, I, and I'm going to happily uh, cease my building project that was on the sand. So there, that's one thing that I think we could, people out there could write a few books on, you know, the place of speculation and conjecture. Now, back to the specific point that Parr makes with respect to conjecture as to our Tanakh tradition. Tim, you brought up the Isaiah 53. One that we encountered here in our reading in three-year cycle is in Deuteronomy 32, where I think it's verse 8, it says, Let me spar b'nei Yisrael, according to, you know, to the number of the children of Israel. But another example, the Dead Sea Scrolls preserves uh, b'nei Elohim, not B'nai Yisrael, B'nai Elohim there. And I think the Septuagint has a, something closer to that, um, like Angeloitheu, or, you know, an, angels of God. Yeah, and, and, and the Septuagint often use Angelos uh, as, a, as a substitute for... For Ben Elohim, or, yeah. yeah. exactly, right. Yeah, so, so uh, and I'm uh, of the same opinion, uh, Tim, I believe that you were sharing, is that I think it's on us to be... Uh, good stewards of our inheritance in terms of what extant manuscripts we have from the ancient world. We want to preserve what we have. We have nothing to hide. You know, right. we, don't need to, we don't need to try to sweep any things under the rug with, because you know, our God is a God of, of truth is a big part of uh, who we are who we are and we want to use just weights and measures so in some of these instances we need to we preserve the dilemma in a way um, mm-hmm. it's it's on us to to be honest with what we have preserve the variance and um, and let that be part of our conversation let us what is let us understand that the fragmentation of God's people happened a long time ago yeah. and that we are that's part of our confrontation with the fact of the matter with the reality of the matter is that we have been fragmented and separated and we are waiting for him to come and uh, help us with these things now when now the last point i guess was concerning emendations now that's where we get into who was it uh who was the there was a, a famous jewish 20th century uh jewish scholar who wrote uh, on the Psalms, he had all manner of emendations of the Psalms according to study of Ugaritic texts and other things. And uh, is it uh, Dawood? Yeah. Uh, 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 
I think I know who you're talking about. Uh, Dahoud, maybe. Dahoud. I, I don't remember. But anyway, I think we need to be really careful because what happens is someone gets a little pet theory. Now we get back to the come full circle, back to the place of speculation and, and um, uh, you know, conjecture generally in the body of the side. Someone gets a, their, their pet their pet symbol they like to hit or their pet theory and they find it everywhere it's a, it's under every rock yeah uh, and they can change well this should be this and this should be this and there's no control no constraints for for that yeah, yeah i think you were talking about uh uh, uh mitchell dahoud yeah uh, dahoud yeah his three three volumes on the psalms and i liked it i i'd like when we were studying uh the psalms in uh, seminary days we used his three volume commentary uh it's in the Anchor Bible Commentary, and uh, we we always chuckled that he's kind of what we called a pan uh, Ugarist. In other words, if he found something in Ugaritic that could in any way be uh, uh, you know squeezed into the Psalms, he 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 did it. Yeah. So you know the, the uh, uh, I, I'm just the the issue that we have uh, is. Just just like you're saying, what what has amazed me is that, you know, take for instance Islam, they refuse to accept the idea that the Quran could ever have had variant readings. I mean that that that's just un, unthinkable to them, and and so you don't find a critical edition of the Quran where you have manuscripts um, that vary that have different readings being noted, you know, in a footnote or something like that. But the same thing you have going on with the Mishnah. You know why? Why is it that why is it that there's no uh, critical edition of these? Why don't we have textual criticism of the Mishnah? Now I know in modern times that's being worked out by some scholars, and uh, and there is a German work that that uh, that did that, but it's not accepted even by uh, modern day uh, or Orthodox uh, rabbis and so forth because there's this idea that somehow since it was given at Sinai, it can you know it has to be preserved letter by letter or whatever, or that if we allow the idea that, well, maybe we have a variant reading, that somehow it diminishes our authority. What, I'm, what I really liked what you said, Rob, was that, you know, as believers in Yeshua, we want the facts. We're willing to live uh, by the facts. And as uh, uh, John Adams, President John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. And so we, uh, you know, we want the facts. But when we look at the facts, we recognize that they uh, they substantiate what we're saying. And the last thing I'll say here is that I just quickly looked at uh, Deuteronomy 33, 1 through 5, which our friend Parr was referring to. And uh, granted, it's fragmentary, but every fragment that has any part of these verses in Qumran is exactly what the Masoretic text has. And if you, you even if you look at Emmanuel Tov's book, uh, uh, and, and I, I don't know him personally, but I don't, I don't understand that he is necessarily, uh, you know, a staunch, staunch conservative kind of a, a person when he's looking at uh, a biblical uh, things. But in his uh, in his work, he makes it. He shows the data that says the the largest complete manuscript that we have from Qumran, which is Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll. You put it up next to, uh, to the uh, Masoretic text, and the vast majority of differences are in spelling. Or in those kinds of uh, mistakes that are easily seen, you know, that a, a word is left out at the end of a line or repeated at, at the next line and that kind of a thing. So, you know, he, he, he substantiates the fact that the Masoretic text, which we have now, uh, is uh, in, in Isaiah as a test case, 
is essentially the same as what we have uh, in 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 Qumran. And so I just looked at the first five verses of Deuteronomy 33, and every word that we have extant in the Qumran fragments is there in the Masoretic text exactly the same. So that that itself, I think, would be some kind of an indication that the copying process was done uh, with with real rigor uh, for accuracy. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. So Parr has another question, too, and uh, we'll, we'll try to blaze through this one a little bit quickly and the next question and get on to our main topic. So Parr says, uh, since Rob uh, has studied... Uh, I'm sorry. Since Rob has studied the question of cir- about circumcision... I wonder if he has any insight into how much of the foreskin needs to be um, snipped. It seems to me that there is a difference between milah and periah, the latter being a later rabbinic addition to the commandment in order to, pre- in order to prevent epispasm, or the reversing of one's circumcision. This issue needs to be studied further since periah, the uncovering, has uh, some not-so-pleasant side effects. Oh, my. <laughs> We need, the, we, need, we need the guy who has the slide presentation. No. Please. Oh, no. Please. please. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Our listeners don't know what I you mean, and then let's not even, let's not even explain I, that. The first thing we should do is make sure we translate things, okay? Uh, you know, uh, let's not use the Hebrew and the Greek words uh, without letting our audience know what we're talking about because they may not understand either of them. Agreed. In, in any event, let, let's just... Wait, hang on. Now, now, now he says that. Now go ahead and, and uh, translate okay. the Hebrew words. No, I, I, here's another. What's the bigger issue? The bigger issue here is the Torah gives a commandment. How do we know whether or not we're keeping it or not? Right. That's the question. The question is not how much, how much, for, how much foreskin has to be removed for it to be official. That, what we're getting into is ideological. This is what fragments uh, Jewish communities are are uh, questions about minutiae, whereas it, where, the, where the consequence is whether or not you're actually true, genuinely, authentically keeping the covenant or not. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. Uh, how, do, how do you keep, how do I know that I'm keeping the Shabbat? How do I know that, um, that I built my, does God accept the sukkah that I made because I used wood screws? to hold it together that did i use you know i don't have palm branches where i live so i used apple okay. tree uh, and uh okay so wait let, let me let me just translate here so what you're saying is it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how much foreskin is cut off as long as foreskin is cut off correct uh, okay but let me go back you you asked me okay so mool simply means foreskin okay so a verbal form on that uh which is in in a hiffle to to remove the foreskin is the is the Hebrew word peritimno or uh, temno uh, means to cut around. It, it, peri means around in that prepositional phrase. So to cut around is the Greek way of saying circumcision. Okay, um, and uh, so uh, the, the the fact of the matter is is that there was circumcision in Egypt. The Egyptians circumcised. But they didn't remove the foreskin. There was just a lateral uh, incision. And it probably was done, uh, you know, let's get medical here. It was probably done uh, in in order to allow cleanliness and so forth. Um, 
You know, I, I read an article not long ago um, in a medical journal that indicated that um, the, the difficulty they're having in some of the healthcare uh, uh, situations is that elderly men in in health in homes where they're being you know cared for, where they're not able to care for themselves, that there actually are are a certain percentage that that they surgically must be circumcised because the foreskin begins to close and and doesn't allow urination. And so it, there's a medical issue here too. So the idea of okay, well, you know, what did they? How did they do this in the ancient ancient times? We really don't know, except for the fact that they did it in such a way to remove the foreskin because that was what distinguished uh, the circumcision uh, that God commanded with regard to what they had in Egypt. And I would just like to say that, uh, you know, in jo- in uh, Joshua, uh, where it says they rolled away the. Uh, you remember, yeah, yeah. It says they rolled away the uh, reproach of Egypt, and because they were they circumcised, right? They circumcised all the males that hadn't been circumcised. They rolled away the reproach of Egypt. My suggestion is that they may have been circumcised the way the Egyptians did it, and then realized, you know, and it's at Gilgal, right? <laughs> Gilgal right. means a wheel that rolls a rolling. Yeah, yeah. Rolling, it's a yeah. it's a play on the term. So. Uh, there you have the removal of the foreskin, and this makes perfect sense with the whole reason, I think, why God gave circumcision as a sign of the covenant, because it was to be a, a metaphor for casting away the flesh, that is, not relying upon the flesh. So uh, there needs to be sufficient flesh removed in order for it to comply. How much that is, the Bible doesn't tell. It's a mark. I am, well, you might say, the, uh, the token Gentile. Okay, so it's a mark. It, it, it is a mar- It's a mark of a covenant that that <clears throat> has to be has to be visible. It's a. I mean, it's a yeah. not visible like a guy's walking around <laughs> in, in his birthday suit. I mean that it's that it's a it's a, a mark. Um, but you know, my study, my my personal study of circumcision is how it functions ideologically and adopts a whole number of meanings in the second temple period um, not on I'm not a I'm not a Mohel <laughs> and so don't, don't confuse don't conflate me with that uh, with a and and what they did in ancient times we we can only know what became kind of the rabbinic uh, halakha later right it, it says if the, you know in in the uh, in the rabbinic literature it says that you know even a Gentile can circumcise a a Jew as long as it's done correctly, and they talk about if the circumcision is done and there are any pieces left or any shards left, it has to be redone. So in the later rabbinic uh, Judaism, they, as you said, Rob, they want every little thing put together so that they can say we kept it completely. You know, in one sense, and I'm not trying to be pejorative here, but in one sense, the rabbinic literature seeks as its primary goal to make the Torah manageable so that someone can say, all these things I have kept since my youth. You know, I mean, I've done it all the way they told me to. So you make up all of these uh, parameters so that you, you, you know, you can say, I've done it. You know, what we have tried to constantly uh, uh, enforce for ourselves is to say, go ask God. He's the one that knows uh, your heart. He's the one who knows whether your obedience is from the heart. And so ask him, how am I doing? You know, you be the judge, not 
some uh, man-made uh, standards that we can we can adjust to. Okay, so I want to move on. Uh, this question, I think, should go somewhat quickly, but I thought that about the last one, and it took 10 minutes. So, um, but I do think this could go quickly. Uh, this person emailed and sent in a message to the uh, on the Facebook page, so they really want this addressed. <laughs> Please talk about uh, Devarim twenty eight fifteen through sixty five and Vayikra twenty six fourteen through thirty nine. These are the curses uh, given to Israel, pointing to uh, pointing to us Negroes being the true Black Hebrew Israelites of Yahweh's Holy Spirit uh, Scriptures. Their words, not mine. In Yah. Shua, spelled, well, it doesn't matter, uh, may Yahweh bless us all. Um, I will start this conversation out. Uh, first of all, there are... Uh, there Could are, you give us those texts again? Yeah, so he's talking about the curses in Devarim 28, 15 through 68, and then Vayikra 26, 14 through 39. Um, so there are uh, black... Uh, people that have Jewish blood. There's no doubt about it. In fact, there's a uh, there's a whole sect of Ethiopian Jews who uh, have the Israel or something. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. They've they, they've proven that they have uh, Jew, uh, Jewish blood uh, and come from uh, Jewish uh, a Jewish line. And so the the idea that there's uh, African uh, and Ethiopian Jews uh, is certainly a truth. There's no doubt about that. The idea, however, that uh, slaves Amer- uh, American slaves, the uh, African Americans who were enslaved here in the U.S., uh, were the lo- the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, I- I'm sorry, just does not hold any historical weight. And the reason why is because you would have to have all of those people have collective amnesia, just like the Lunar Sabbath. Those people did not believe that they were Jewish when they came over on the boats. Uh, they did not profess to be Jewish. And uh, not only that, but... Uh, it- it's not like all of a sudden uh, the people who are now claiming to be Jewish who are white all of a sudden just decided one day, hey, you know what, we're actually Jewish. It wasn't like that. P- it, people did not lose the, the idea that they were Jewish. In the Babylonian exile, it wasn't like everyone just forgot that they were Jewish and no one knew it. And then you have the, the lost tribes of Israel. That's not what the lost tribes are. My dad's spoken quite eloquently about this in our discussion, our water cooler discussion on uh, the uh, two house movement. Any uh, any other insights into this, guys? Well, uh, I would simply say, you know, to our brothers and sisters uh, of color and you know, uh, ethnically from having their roots, uh, ethnic roots in Africa or something like that. Um, listen, we accept you fully. We, we, you know, you you don't need to have some kind of connection to an ancient people group in order to be, uh, you know, fully part of who we are together in the body of the Messiah. So I think the first thing I would just say is, uh, while I would say, okay, this is a good question. Do I have Jewish heritage in my family roots? Okay, that's a fine question. But it's not a theological question in the sense of somehow I gained something with God that otherwise I wouldn't have. And I, I just think we need to be careful not to try to put this kind of special um, pleading upon a, a people group association, okay? But I, you know, the, the, other th- the last thing I'll say is simply this, that when you have the, uh, the first exile of the northern tribes, 722 is the normal date that's given, and they're taken off to Assyria, and then Assyria is conquered by Babylon, 
and in 586 you have the southern tribes being taken off to Babylon. You know, is is there anybody who doesn't think that if you know you you went and you found uh, somebody, a neighbor, somebody that had a uh, a Hebrew name, wouldn't you say, oh wow, you know, we, we you know, I mean, if if you come to the states and you're in a in a, a a population a neighborhood and all of a sudden you and you're and you're from uh, Vietnam and you find out there's you meet somebody at the store who who also has a Vietnamese name or speaks Vietnamese or whatever you say wow here we are from the same place the idea that that somehow they lost this idea is just uh, incredibly uh, impossible I think no doubt and when Hosea says they forgot me, when God says they forgot me, it doesn't mean they forgot about me because Hosea also says that God will forget them, which means he, he doesn't forget anything. Forget is used there in the sense of a covenant, uh, breaking the covenant. Well, beyond this, the, per, the person who wrote this uh, brings up two passages of Scripture, which is the, the blessings and the curses. Mm-hmm. To, to hypothesize that this happened to the African Americans, but in some way didn't happen to the... the the people who claim to be Israel, mm-hmm. the the Jews of today, mm-hmm. uh, is simply just not true. Right. Uh, there have been horrible, horrible, horrible things. The curses that we've seen in the Torah happen to uh, Israel. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, to equate that with slavery in the U.S., I, I'm not trying in any way to discount uh, the atrocities that went on with the with the uh, African American slaves here in the U.S. I'm not trying to do that. All I'm saying is is that to say that that's obviously what was happening, or that's obviously what uh, Deuteronomy is is describing. Uh, I, I I think that's a stretch. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay, so let's... Hey, and well, one, one other ahead. thing is that let's look at what is, what is beautiful here. What is beautiful is the fulfillment of God's word that we have peoples of all <laughs> nations and languages that are seeking him above all things, that are thirsty for his word, that uh, believe the gospel, they want to walk in the ways of the Torah, and that is a big cause of celebration. And just like we were talking about uh, conjecture and speculation earlier, we've seen it. And it's, it's not just in, in, you know, the, the Negro communities that this uh, listener brings to mind, but we've seen it with British Israelism, we've seen it in Mormonism, we've seen it in um, all manner of places with the Indian tribes mm-hmm. in America, Native American, uh, this desire to try to connect ethnic history in order to validate one's position in the covenant. And and I think it's a basic, what we call a, a category mistake. And Tim, you, you put it well. Let's not, it, there's a theological question and then there's an ethnic. And I think sometimes with, that, that people can get zealous and forget the promise that all nations, all kindreds, all tongues would, yes. would be, are called. I say amen to um, Yes. So anyway, just the last point on that. Okay. Let's move on, and we got about 20 minutes left, or, I mean, we have as long as we want, but um, let's talk about... Now, I was going to pull a bunch of sound clips for this, but honestly, uh, I didn't want to spend the 111 hours, uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, 111 minutes listening to the one lecture I found on this subject online, (laughs) Um, and I just didn't have the time. So... Uh, the question basically comes up about canonicity. And uh, I took – this comes somewhat out of my own mind, my own uh, questions, I guess you could say. 
I took the class by, uh, taught by Rob Van Hoff on non-canonical first century literature, which was very interesting. We, uh, we read such uh, books as the Book of Enoch, Bell and the Dragon, um, some other apocryphal works, and uh, it was very interesting. One of the things that I've realized is that back in the first century, it seems like these books were a, a much bigger deal than they are today. In fact, growing up in an evangelical home, under my father, of course, I, uh, I didn't even really uh, learn about, know about, or read any of the apocryphal works. However, in the first century, that doesn't seem to be what the, ca- the, the case at all. In fact, it seems like these books were, uh, had a much bigger emphasis, even if they weren't uh, considered canon. It sure seems like they uh, were widely read, and uh, children certainly knew about them. So the question I would have is, why is that? What, why has the shift changed? Should we put more emphasis on the apocryphal works? What place should they, uh, what role should they have in the life of a believer? Why aren't they scripture? And, uh, yeah, so I, I guess those are the, the main ideas of where this question comes from. And I suppose the first question that I would, uh, would pose is, was the Apocrypha in the Septuagint? And if so, we see the, uh, we see the apostles, uh, quoting, from the Septuagint and Paul, of course, quoting from the Septuagint quite often, doesn't that give some weight to the apocryphal works? Go. For, before we get <clears throat> specifically to those questions, excuse me, uh, you, you you brought up the question of, you know, well, when you were growing up, you didn't read these. Yeah, you're right. But, but we had at least two copies of Aesop's fables in our house, and and you read some of those, and and mom read those to you, uh, some of them. Um, so, if a popular work is around, and you find it in, would somebody think that was part of the Bible that we that we had? And I mean, just because you have these, remember that Qumran, for instance, was very apocryphal in terms of, or apocalyptic, I guess I should say. They thought they. In in some cases, we can't even discover if at the end of their existence they intercalated the the months so that you could keep the Passover in the spring of the year. Okay, well, agreed, but at the same time... Okay. But, uh, why, uh, why, but why? They, they, they thought the end was coming soon. So they were attracted to ap- apocalyptic works that talked about the end, which much of the Apocrypha is about. Okay, but you, but hang on just a sec. We're, now, we, we, moved, we moved quite quickly to the Qumran sect, and I understand why, because we find a lot of Enoch at, at Qumran and whatnot. However, we have to, I mean, you'd have to admit that, that uh, the apocryphal works certainly were much wider spread than just Qumran. I mean, it was in the Septuagint, right? So, I mean, it wasn't just Qumran that was, that was accepting the apocryphal works. Well, again, you're, and Rob can speak to this better than I, perhaps, but um, you're, you're talking in kind of monolithic terms. You know, if you take Enoch, for instance, right? You've got Ethiopic Enoch. You've got Aramaic Enoch. Okay. You, you don't, okay, so what have you got there? You, you don't have a single manuscript of Enoch. You don't have one single manuscript that has that that has it all, as far as we can tell. So, yeah, I mean, we that that's part of our when we talk about being good stewards and preserving things. You know, as historians, if you imagine a, a giant table, right? It's, you know, rooms full of these giant tables with all our extant manuscripts on them. 
uh, we put things where they are, where they come on the scene in history. You know, Enoch, what we call the Book of Enoch, is a, a conglomeration of collected yeah. things that uh, from various dates at different times. Um, but that's talking about one book specifically. Um, aside from, I think Caleb, what you're getting at is, if I'm hearing your question, your question is, it seems like in the Second Temple period or in Yeshua's day, at least first century. There were all sorts of Jewish books uh, that were kind of floating around in the air, and people were aware of all of them. And not uh, just aware; they, so, sometimes, sometimes they were considered scripture. I would think. Okay, and and so some people well, quoted why, them as that? authoritatively. Well, but I, they, I, I, but but I, I, why why if that's true, if that picture that we're painting there is true, why do we only have these books in our canon today? Right, that's what you're asking. Why? Sure. Why? Why yep. don't we just have this huge thing? Well, one is, I, and, and what is the what? How? Do, another side question: How in the body of Messiah do we uh, handle these texts? We don't just avoid them, right? So uh, I, I look at it from the historical perspective. You know, this historical grammatical uh, angle, which privileges chronology, understanding chronology as best we can, understanding uh, terminology that. We use these texts to understand the Jewish world, but it's not just as simple as reading it. As Tim just pointed out, we've got the hard manuscript evidence that we have to deal with. If, if the only full, uh, you know, book of, quote, Enoch we have is this, you know, medieval Ethiopic text. It's, I think it's even, I don't even think it's that old. I think it's newer than that. Um, and then we just have fragments of Greek and Aramaic texts from, you know, the first century, we, we really don't have a lot to work on. We can't talk about a monolithic, quote, book of Enoch uh, back then. We just have these Enoch traditions is maybe the best we could talk and, about them. And, and I think, uh, Rob, along with that, I think what happens is people, you know, they go on the Internet or they go to their local library or their bookstore or whatever, and they buy a copy of the book of Enoch. And what it is, it's an English translation that some... Uh, editor has put together of all these different scraps and kind of made it the way and so he, they think they think that there's a manuscript that falls behind a single manuscript that falls behind this English translation. Well, that's simply not the case. Yeah, there, there was someone who e emailed me very passionately recently who's working on a project to compare the Hebrew text with the Ethiopic Tanakh because they want to they want to uh, to basically do an exercise of textual criticism of the Masoretic text by, by comparison with the Ethiopic uh, books of the Tanakh because they think the Ethiopic is going to have some sort of scribal insight into what the scribes changed. And it's just a, the method is wrong. The method is, is so wrong and backwards uh, to, to do that. The Ethiopic texts we have are very late. They they themselves have we have more than one manuscript tradition in those in Ethiopic. So you've got the same problem there. You've got different Ethiopic manuscripts that aren't going to agree with each other. Which one which reading are you going to choose? Sure, but you have that with the I mean, you have older manuscripts of Enoch than you do of some of the apostol of of all the apostolic scriptures. Because but you have the fragmentary in the Qumran. Yeah, yeah just small fragments. Okay, yeah, but I mean, still I mean still you still have fragmentary Enoch, yeah, well Enoch because Enoch the the 
animal apocalypse and the dream what is it book of dreams you know these were written in the second century bc right so of course they're going to be older i mean they're we're going to have fragments of those um but those those are sectarian documents those are not all jew it's not like all jews everywhere were reading the book of enoch no that those were those probably a small percentage of Jews were reading those books and they thought they were scripture. They thought they had heavenly behind the scenes that no other Jews had right? because Enoch himself had, had gone to heaven and, and uh, they had the book of Jubilees where it's a secret, you know, this other revelation that happened on Mount Sinai that they, that tells the truth about the Shabbat and the Moedim, etc. And that, those are sectarian documents. That's it's uh, you know, and then later rabbis say, no, we have the, the behind the scenes of what happened at Mount Sinai, but it was oral; it wasn't written down. So these are different Jewish groups that are, you know, pushing their own agenda. And the disciples of Yeshua, they they have their collection. They they wrote gospels, they wrote letters to different communities, and that's our precious. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Yeshua says, "Learn from me." Mm-hmm. Right? Why does he say, you know, come to me, learn from me? And he also said, don't, don't listen to the. He's saying, don't listen to any other teacher. Listen to me, and and that's the privilege and joy we have. And he said, he told the the disciples, his apostles. He said, when when, when I leave, I will send the Spirit, I will send the Ruach, and He will bring to your memory everything that I commanded you, or everything that I taught you. I mean, now. If you look at that, that's not something that's universal, that the Spirit of God uh, brings to our memory today the the teachings of Yeshua. No, we didn't hear him teach those things, but they did. And so when it says that the Spirit will bring to your memory that which I taught you, what did they do with it? They wrote it down. That's how we have the Gospels. And so uh, let let me just uh, note something here that... uh, F.F. Bruce wrote in his book on the Old Testament canon of the New Testament church, which is the the title of it. He says, We have seen that the Jewish canon, in all probability, reached its final form in the time of Judas Maccabeus, about 164 B.C., and did so for all schools of thought alike. And he has, in the previous chapters, uh, given plenty of data for that. The disputes that afterward occurred about five books, he's talking about uh, there was disputes about Ezekiel, about Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, about Esther, and so forth and so on. Uh, that uh, occurred about uh, five books, were not concerned, as has usually been thought, with the question of adding them to the canon, but with the question of actually or effectively removing them from it. Okay? And in the, 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 we already have 24 books listed in one, in one place, 22. Uh, Josephus lists 22. Uh, but if you look at how they're grouped, it's the same 39 that we have today. They, they weren't asking, should we add these, they had already considered them to be Scripture. And now there was disputes as to whether or not they should be considered to be Scriptures. Okay, so we have the canon of the Tanakh very early. And uh, so, you know, that tells us then when when Yeshua, for instance, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when he talks about the, the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms, which is the largest book of, of the uh, writings, the three-part uh, way of talking. That's what we mean when we say Tanakh, right? Torah, Torah Nevi'im, Prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings. Um, he doesn't have to explain that to them. 
he doesn't you know, he uses a terminology that seems to indicate that they understand the scriptures that he's talking about and you have that in Paul you know all scripture is inspired by God he says okay well he doesn't have to explain what is scripture so by the time Paul is talking and writing he already has an audience that knows what everyone agrees with is the scriptures you have the muratorian canon that comes now uh, in the second century or third century uh, in the 200s and uh, it it also lists uh, numbers of the apostolic scriptures and the books what are being questioned and so forth the very fact that there was questioning about it tell is a good thing they weren't not going to allow scripture just to be added to and added to and added to okay they want because it was authoritative right but it seems like you still have you still have this debate going on even up into Mishnaic times, and Andre brings up this passage, and I, I mean, we can we can go to this passage where allegedly it's uh, attributed to Akiva. Whether or not that's true or not, oh, I would question that. Uh, the whole question of whether or not these books make your hands unclean or not, uh, this obviously is referring to the ruling had been made uh, by this time that a uh, a holy book or a book of canon uh, that was a part of the canon would make your hands unclean. Uh, there's different ideas on why they, they ruled this. It was probably simply to, so that people wouldn't touch the scrolls um, and to, to be able to preserve the scrolls, in other words. Um, but So Akiva has this uh, conversation in the Mishnah about whether or not uh, different books make your hands unclean. But, but why are they having that? Uh, why, why did that even come up in the Mishnah? That's a great question. That's It's uh, because of the believers were taking the writings of the apostles and were saying, these are scripture on equal basis with the Torah, and the Jews that had rejected Yeshua, the Jewish communities, various sects that had rejected communities, had to say, wait, what do we do with this? They had to say no. They had to, they had to say, what really does make your hands unclean? And in the, in the, is it the Bavli or the Mishnah? I can't remember. I think it's the Bavli, uh, Rob, where it says that if a book of the Minim contains the, the uh, Tetragrammaton, the holy, the sacred name. Are we to give our? Are we to risk our lives to rescue it from a fire? You know, so that they're they're interacting with those who are outside of their circles. And I think the whole idea that uh, that I'm not even sure Akiva said that. You know, I, I whatever, don't think so, he did either. Yeah. And I'm finding more and more that it seems to me the Mishnah and the later rabbinic literature is reacting yeah. to the apostolic scriptures, more than um, showing a foundation for, <laughs> in other words, the other way around. Who's copying who or who's reacting to what? You know, uh, I was noting there in the in the uh, Siddur where it says that it talks about the, uh, the we see the light of, of Hashem uh, in the Torah. Well, that sounds to me like a, a playoff of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 because Moses face was shining with the glory of God, but what does Paul make that, turn that to, to be in chapter 4? He says, so we see the glory of God shining where? Not in Moses, but in the face of Yeshua HaMashiach. Now, if you, you know, if you're a, a part of a Jewish sect that says, no, we reject Yeshua as a heretic, uh, then what, what are you going to say? We see the glory shining in the Torah itself. So it sounds to me like the later Mishnah and Siddurim and so forth are are maybe reacting. 
to what was going on, and that's why you have this this whole question in the Mishnah of what makes the hands unclean in terms of canonical scripture. Right, and and Tim, you mentioned earlier uh, some of those books that were being discussed, and and that's that's you know do does it defile the hands? That's yeah. the yeah. Uh, the issue behind the question of. Uh, Kohelet, and uh, maybe not with with Ezekiel. It was a it was a different uh, point. It wasn't whether it defiled the hands or not. It is the, con- the content of Ezekiel. Right. One rabbi st- student suggested um, that it contradicted the Torah of Moses, and so there was because a, it added a festival. Yeah. So there was some some, some little notion there that was separate than the the defiling the hands argument. But we also have you know from the second century BC, we have the book of Ben Sirah, which was, was a ri- wonderful, wonderful study. And this is why with the book of Ben Sirah, uh, we have Hebrew fragments of Ben Sirah, not only from the Dead Sea Scrolls, but also from the Cairo Geniza. Right. So we have Hebrew book uh, of Ben Sirah. And then we have a Greek translation that was done by, uh, by his grandson. The grandson of the author claims to be, this was my great-grandfather or my great-grandfather, I don't remember. And I'm going to translate it into Greek now, and it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to do it. So, and this is all in the second century B.C. We have Hebrew fragments that originate, uh, are copies from an original, obviously, written before the Maccabean. This is one of the neat things historically that we have here. We have a Hebrew book written from before the Maccabean, uh, before Antiochus Epiphany. So, so what we would say early 2nd century B.C., talking about the Law and the Prophets. Um, and also we have the translation into Greek post in the, under the Maccabean uh, uh, dynasty the Hasmonean dynasty, we have a Greek translation. It's just wonderful for both Hebrew and Greek students to, to be able to study those uh, next to each other. Um, anyway, for example, one of the fun ones for, any, for our Greek and student Hebrew out there is that the word huk, chet, ha, kuf, or chet, vav, kuf, is translated dieteke a few times which we think of as covenant. Okay. We think, which often we see dieteke and we think, oh, that has to be breed. Um, but we can see from second century, we have a Jewish translation of the word huk into dieteke. Anyway, th- there's many other wonderful things. But the point is here in the Bensi Ra, and it might be only in the Greek, it, uh, because what happened when the grandson translated it, he put an intro to explaining what this book was. And in there, he says he talks about more than once. He says the law, the prophets, and the other books uh, of our, our other ancestral books. This is before Enoch. This is before Jubilees was around. So this is just to that point that there already was this established, received uh, textual uh, or library, if you want, to, an ancient library that was uh, seen to be the official uh, library of Israel, Israelite faith, if you want to put it that way, Israel monotheistic faith. Can I add one more thing to, to that Please. whole discussion? You know, it, there is a textual uh, uh, basis for our discussion here, and, that, and we set our feet upon that. But there's also an issue of faith, and I'm not saying faith is devoid from, from evidence. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But uh, do we believe that the Scriptures are inspired? 
if we believe they're inspired, then we should also believe that God would not inspire something and without doing using some method by which he would preserve it for those that needed to read it. Because the scriptures were not just given to the first century people or to the ancient people of Israel. The scriptures were for us as well. And, you know, you, when Yeshua says at the end of Matthew, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you, it presumes that when they will make disciples, they're going to transmit the teachings of Yeshua, just as Rob said before. So I, I think we have to come to the to uh, a matter of providence here, and that is is that what I like to call the scriptures of self-authenticating. In the end, when the dust all clears, God in his providence through various means and various measures kept the scriptures for us so that we would have them, uh, you know, and he even used, and I know this is going to bother some people, <laughs> but he even used the Christian church in the early Christian church to help with that preservation mm-hmm. in a way that that only God could do it through his uh, divine and sovereign providence. So, uh, you know, every every religion, that man-made religion, that that crops up in our times, wants to use something that has not been historically considered to be the scriptures. They want to add the book. They want to have the Book of Mormon. They want to add the you know. They want to have the Quran. They want to add you know the recent uh, uh, so-called translation of the Bible uh, that's out there now coming again to uh, cause people to uh, question what what is this and I'm not even going to give you the name but at any rate it includes the book of Yasher or Jasher as part of the scriptures which which all scholars recognize to be a fraud of the 1800s put together by a fictional you know by an author that basically was known for writing fiction and he was laughing all all, all the way saying look at all these people are thinking it's the real thing uh you know and now we have people including that in their bible saying this is an, an a neglected uh, part of the word of it's god like mormonism too yeah mormonism. mormonism exactly the same thing here i've got this i've got this thing it connects with the ancient world in ways that fill in these gaps you know and if i yeah. that that are there and and people buy onto it and and it's a warning for us, you know, when we, so when we read these books, we can't be, back to Caleb's original point, what value are these books? What do I do? If I, does, are we telling someone not to pick up the book of Enoch? No, I'm not telling someone not to pick up the book of Enoch. But when you read the book of Enoch, recognize that you're, you're, you are not learning about God. You're not learning, that you're not learning about the behind, what really happened mm-hmm. at this you know, at Mount Sinai, or you're not learning about what really, uh, the, the real calendar, you're not learning that. What you're learning is what ancient Jewish sectarian groups wrote to push, to try to convince other Jews. You're seeing advertising. It's advertising. It's first century advertising that's going to try to draw you in to think that this is the way. Now you have insight, special knowledge that's going to you know, uh, it's, you know what's interesting? Differentiate you in the world now. You know what's interesting about that, Rob, is that there are people in the Messianic mo- movement, <clears throat> pardon me, there are, there are teachers and people within the Messianic movement who are preaching things out of the Book of Enoch. They've been influenced by the Book of Enoch, and they don't even necessarily understand that. You know, Jim Staley is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rob Skiba, I'm sure Skiba probably realizes that he's preaching things out of the Book of, of Enoch. But the whole idea that the Nephilim are 
our uh, angels that have come down and all these kind of things. Uh, That's post back, but okay. Just I, can I just of course put note on that point. Here, back to this Ben Sira that we have in Hebrew, and then we have the infiltration of Hellenism in the second temple period or, or in the second century BC, and then we have Greek. There's a difference here. So it's with the rise of Greek culture, the giant, the the Ethiopic, uh, or not? Pardon me, uh, the Enochic. Uh, notion of giants that we see in Enoch and Jubilees, that's a response to Greek mythology about giants. Right. It's, it, 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 we don't have that from the earlier uh, right. period. And in ben, in ben Sirah talks about the, the noble ones of old, something re- allude, that seems to allude to, to Genesis six. 6, but it's, he uses princes. Right. Well, guess what? The Greek translation that his grandson made put, put giants there, I think. Yeah. He, he changes it. We see the influence of this Greek mindset that is infiltrating here in the mid-2nd century B.C., and part of that is we need to somehow have our own story of uh, stories that push back against the powerful Greek stories. You know, it, uh, this ties in with uh, your reference to uh, Mitchell Dahoud and his three volumes on, uh, on Psalms, because I was mentioning... In seminary days, we were we were uh, using that as we or reading it as we were uh, doing psalm studies, and he was what we called a panugarist. That is, he took Ugaritic, which is an early Northwest Semitic found in the Roshamra uh, uh, tablets, and he tried to find any connection to Ugaritic in the Psalms. And uh, our, our professor of, of blessed uh, memory, uh, uh, Dr. Herman Ostell, uh, he kept saying, "Gentlemen, please remember." Qumran was a sect, a sectarian group that removed themselves out into the desert. Now, let's use a, a just for sake of comparison, let's say that there's a, a, a little messianic group and they get started and maybe they have a fairly big following uh, just amongst themselves in one city down in Southern California or somewhere on the East Coast or something like that. And they put together a Bible and they put the book of Jasher in it. Okay. And then, you know, 500 years from now, there, people are digging up the remains of, of, of a, this place, and they find it, and they say, oh, all of the Messianics must have been accepting Jasher as part of their Bible. I mean, Qumran was one sect out in the desert. Why do we think that if you find it at Qumran, it's normative? So, you know, I, I just think we have to keep that in mind, too. Right. Just because they were they were uh, writing these and storing them and, and apparently... Uh, uh, considering them these books to be somehow of sacred value doesn't mean that it was widespread. It's interesting. Robert says in the chat room, he says, so can there be any truth in Enoch? Can there be any truth outside Scripture? We Obviously there can be because, because Jude quotes something, whether or not it's actually the book of Enoch, uh, that was, or one of the books of Enoch that was going around. Oh, I want to say time. something to that when you get done. Uh, or not. It, sir, I don't think Jude was saying that this this was scripture, but I think that he's saying that there's truth in it. Go ahead. You know, uh, when you when you put the uh, uh, the the various uh, scraps of Enoch, Ethiopic and Aramaic next to each other, and then you look at at Jude, it's very interesting because it says in Jude fourteen. Uh, remember, there's only one chapter in Jude, so chapter one, verse fourteen. He says, it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation or the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, 
Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The word came is not found in any of the Ethiopic scraps or in the Aramaic scraps that we have of Enoch. Um, I know I take it back. It, it has the word Massah, did, okay? But um, uh, most, uh, I just did some look, looking again this morning, a number of scholars with regard to Enoch uh, scholars uh, think that when Jude wrote this, he used this past tense or aorist tense of came, erkomai, um, uh, uh, aorist tense here, as a what we call a prophetic perfect. And it should be translated, behold, the Lord will come. What is not found in either of the, uh, uh, any of the manuscripts of Enoch is the word Lord. And he put, he, he had kurios here. So, who do you think he's talking about when he says, Behold, the Lord will come with many thousands of his holy ones? He is now referring this to Yeshua to execute judgment upon all. He's talking about Yeshua returning. And Yeshua prophesied this of himself in, in Matthew 24 and 25, that he would return. And so, is he taking something that is like Enoch? And is he saying what Enoch really was talking about was the end of days? Not, you know not in the seventh generation from Adam this happened. So, I mean, I just think you, you, we need to carefully uh, uh, look at how Jude uh, refers to Enoch, and is he using something that everyone would have known? That doesn't make it scripture. If Enoch was a well-written, uh, well-read uh, document or understood document at that time, uh, 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 Jude is simply just uh, making reference to it, but he's talking about the coming of Yeshua in the at the end of days. That that's how I take it. Uh, Robert says so. Looking at some of the theology surrounding demons, Enoch's explanation actually makes sense, but that's probably for a different show. It probably is for a different show. The idea of angelology and and demonology is uh, one that I've never fully uh, tackled, and uh, I always find it interesting some of the places that. Um, that our theology, the church's theology on angels and demons comes from, um, whether or not, you know, it's a show in and of itself and maybe even more than a show. It's, it's a study in and of itself. All right. Um, any final thoughts before we, uh, before we take off gentlemen, I would just encourage us all to, um, to just accept what God has preserved, and to spend our lives knowing it, learning it, and living it out, and not thinking that there's something that's missing that we have to find uh, some secret something. Uh, no, what God has given us is in every way sufficient and more than sufficient for us to follow in the footsteps of Yeshua. Absolutely. And in the, in the spirit of the season, you know, it's traditional to read Kohelet, and uh, during Sukkot, and we we had a wonderful Bible study on first day of, of Sukkot. We read through chapter one in Hebrew as a as a we had a nice you, group of folks. And you should let uh, our listeners know that Kohelet is Ecclesiastes. Oh, Ecclesiastes, and we read it in Hebrew. Why? Because I wanted to point out right Hevel uh, yeah. is we we don't want to think that he's preaching hopelessness, and and that some of the Bibles that people had, you I would know. read it, and it's like like it's a like he's like the book of the Bible that is just saying that everything's hopeless and worthless. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not the point. He's talking about I, conceptions that weary our flesh. And he says that, you know, things that the eyes never satisfied, the ears are never full. 
and that uh, you know if that multiple multiple of words is weariness, and then he he does that at the beginning and at the very end he does the same thing. He says in verse twelve of chapter thirteen, or is it twelve twelve? He says asot svarim harbe. They're making of many books. Ain kates. There is no end. But it says velahag harbe yegat basar. Much study weariness of the flesh. And we talked about the connection to the end of the Gospel of John, where he says, you know what, there's so much that we could tell you about Yeshua. We'd have, the books that we would write would not be able to, or the world couldn't contain the books. Right. So the point is, there's got to be an end to learning. We have to, we have to, there's a time to, to put the books aside. There's a place for study, a place for learning, but ultimately... We're, we're living people. We can't, as much as, you know, bookworms uh, like, like Tim, like you and I are, you know, we uh, are the more rare kinds of, uh, you know, we're the more the exception. But we have lives, relationships, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeshua didn't take his disciples to the libraries in Jerusalem. He took them out to the countrysides. He took them to the villages and to the, the seaside, etc., and taught them about who God was. Right. Um, so our perspective is informed by more than just what we find in books. Now, books are important. They have their place. But there's a part of our nature that is going to always seek is that what I call it, that Indiana Jones uh, <laughs> uh, search for the lost, then fill in the blank. Right. That, it's, it, it makes a good movie. It makes a great action uh, adventure. And then that's it, though. None of this paleo-Hebrew, none of this... Lost tribes, none of this blood moons, none of this uh, hadron collider on on the Day of Atonement, which is the day the Pope is coming, which is the 266th day of whatever. It's just that is nonsense, and we need to we need to be loud and clear with people so that they can hear the true signal of the Word of God and be edified by that, right? Uh, and eliminate the noise. Many other signs Yeshua did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might know, <laughs> that you might believe that he is the Savior, the Son of God, right? So uh, that's, uh, the, that was the text you were pointing to. And amen. Uh, we have these. Let's read them. Let's put them in our hearts. Let's ask the Ruach. Oh, and you also mentioned in, in Ecclesiastes, and Paul says there in, in Corinthians, uh, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor is it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him, but God has revealed them unto us by his Ruach. For the Ruach searches all things, even the very deep things of God. We have what we need. We have the Scriptures, and we have the grace of God in the indwelling Spirit. No doubt. That's well, a good uh, tie back to tabernacles, Sukkot, yeah. right? Because our body is like... Our body is, is a tent. Yeah. Our communities, are, our families are tents uh, where the Ruach dwells. And they're temporal here in this world. But the command is rejoice, right? Rejoice. Amen. Okay, well, we hope that you have a wonderful Sukkot and that uh, you spend a lot of time in your Sukkah. And, uh, yeah, we need emails from you. Keep sending us emails telling us about what you want to hear 
us talk about. I think Robert had a good idea. Maybe we'll uh, yeah, touch I love on Robert's idea. Angelology. And thanks everybody else too for sending those those great questions in. No doubt. All right. Uh, once again, a big happy birthday to our friend Gary Springer. And yeah, I guess that's pretty much all I really have to say. Uh, we hope that as you uh, spend time in your suka, you will do so uh, with a looking towards. Uh, the one who uh, we do it all for, and that is our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.